morning everyone, my name is Jay and today we will be learning about climate justice. Specifically, we will be learning about a research paper titled Behind the Veil, Climate Migration, Regime Shift, and a New Theory of Justice. It was published in the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. You can find the transcript and citations for the show under the description. This is a shorter edited version of a longer interview. The author of the paper is Maxine Burkett, professor of law at the University of Hawaii. She's also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. She's an expert in migration as a result of climate change. Her paper is about the effects of climate change. There are the direct effects, stronger hurricanes, longer droughts, more intense wildfires. But the paper says the effects will not just be limited to the environment. The climate crisis will also stress the economies and governments of the world. There will be mass migration. Some countries will even lose territory to rising seas. Major cities and the homes of millions of people will be underwater. The paper says the colonial and imperialist roots of today's economies and governments means that the people who will suffer the most from climate change are the ones who are least equipped to deal with it. And they're the least responsible for the crisis. So Professor Burkett's paper asks, what does justice look like in a world ravaged by the climate crisis? How do you make amends with the survivors of environmental atrocities? And how do we fix this before it's too late? I spoke with Professor Burkett over the phone about these questions and her paper. Professor Burkett, your paper describes how climate change is not just going to impact us physically. You say it's a socio-political phenomenon too. What, what does that mean? We think about climate change so much so as an issue of burning greenhouse gases and, you know, the physics of the, that are involved and the atmospheric chemistry and the shifts in that. And it's become this sort of very esoteric scientific question. But really the geopolitics, the history that gets us to where we are, that explains why there have been such disproportionate contributions from some countries, disproportionately negative um, impacts on, on other countries, the sort of historical roots of a country's vulnerability. All of those things suggest that climate change wasn't just a geophysical phenomenon one of you know, shifting atmospheric chemistry, but also reflects the geopolitics of our uh, country relationships. And uh, certainly moving forward, similar uh, impacts will occur that aren't solely about how bad the, the science of it is, but also how ill-prepared, for example, the law and policy of it is. Are we prepared at all? We're not. No, we're not. I mean, there's an inadequacy of, the, of response um, to, to climate change. And in fact, if we think about it, um, this, it's, you know, the basic indicators of sort of sound leadership is that you're sort of looking at the horizon and preparing for threats and opportunities that might be, um, that might arise. But we're not necessarily seeing that, to, again, to the degree necessary given the, the impacts of climate change. We also know that a lot of the, um, the predominant forces, or at least dominant forces, of within our sort of political economy in the West, um, there has been a history of intentionally misleading uh, in a sort of shocking and heartbreaking way, right? So um, a number of the specific oil and gas companies that have been a part of um, producing such um, incredible emissions um, have known with incredible accuracy the climate impacts that we're experiencing now as, as early as 30 to 40 years ago. There was certainly time as well to respond um, well before, before now. And of course, the, what we're seeing in terms of delayed response is even more shocking. This is an unprecedented sort of situation to be in. The future, especially beyond 2100, is unknown. Um, 
But, you know, of course, it's a one-sided risk. We do have a sense that it's not that it's going to get better. It's, it's how bad will it be. That's unknown. The paper explains how people should respond to this unknown with a thought exercise called the veil of ignorance. It goes like this. There's a veil in front of you, and you can't see past it. You don't know what the world will look like behind the veil. You have guesses, but you don't know. And you don't know who you will be in that world. You might be one of the few oil executives in Europe, or maybe you will be among the many women of color living off of $2.50 a day in most of the world. And it's not just you. Everyone is looking at the veil, and no one knows what's behind it, or who they will be on the other side. It's a philosophical question, supposed to help us work through our biases. If you have to come up with laws or a theory of justice without knowing who or where you will be in the future, then whatever you come up with will have to be fair to everyone. Professor Burkett, could you help us understand this veil of ignorance? The suggestion is that that is providing an opportunity for people to come out to produce an unbiased um, sort of framework, a set of principles that we would all live by that we would consider just and just as well for those that are that are worst off. And that the again, the ignorance is not just limited to who we are in society and when we are in society, but is um, also an ignorance as to what society um, looks like as it is perpetually impacted by worsening changes to our natural environment and the climate. And from that deliberative process, from a, a position of, of, of not knowing who you might be and when you might be, and acknowledging that the way the sort of current um, lay of the land is suggests that you're likely to be in a quote-unquote worse off position, what are the principles that we would introduce? And from those principles, how would we build legal infrastructure and, and policy infrastructure that would allow for just outcomes. Again, no matter how you, who you are once that veil is lifted. The paper says a key part of any conversation about a new theory of justice would have to involve non-repetition or reparations. What does that mean? The guarantees of non-repetition are a key part of reparations theory, and reparations usually, you know, is is comprised of an apology uh, for the wrong that has been committed, um, some kind of uh, um, compensation for it. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, monetary, but some sort of uh, sort of uh, attempt to make that other person or community whole again. And then this guarantee of non-repetition. Again, this guarantee that the the factors, the the worldviews that got us there, will will not be repeated. And so, in the place of that, uh, what 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 happens next? What what is that? What's replaced? Um, if we agree that that would be. Um, that non-repetition is a goal. Anyone who's a parent knows, right, it's not just the sorry, it's the attempting not to do it again. And what that looks like requires us rethinking some pretty foundational elements of our global economy. Uh, and, and again, that would be um, at issue behind the veil as well. And I think it's important that we underscore the fact that it, you know, no one person or no one person or echelon should decide what that looks like, but that out of these deliberative processes will come up with some good solutions. And um, the deliberative processes, I think, could look to ways of management and worldviews that have worked before. So you can speak to possible characteristics of what that might look like. And um, if you're mindful of ecological limits, for example, you will include a more holistic approach to management of your resources. And um, 
and you know, in the process of researching for the paper, indigenous legal orders em emerged as a as a worldview that's really significant to consider. Um, right now, because of the changes that we're seeing, a number of of both scholars and practitioners have been looking to. Uh, indigenous knowledge, for example, indigenous environmental knowledge specifically, to understand how to address management issues in a particular uh, region or community. And it's important to resurrect the worldviews that are based there as well. Um, again, without essentializing the indigenous experience and suggesting that it can be, it hasn't been, say, impacted by history or colonialism or any of those things, um, it's important to look at their approaches because the, because uh, again, with a broad brush, there, there is a tendency for there to be a more holistic approach to management. And um, this is important to consider because this is uh, a part of the history of many communities and many cultures. Uh, the Western traditions as well had uh, an approach of holism that was certainly part of their history and um, would be a, uh, didn't win out ultimately um, as well, but um, suggests that there are um, that, that everyone has indigenous ancestry to which we might look for um, longer-term planning. The paper talks about how island nations specifically are facing an existential crisis in the face of climate change. Could you explain what that means? We have the Pacific Islands in particular um, confronting you know, increased heat, lack of fresh water, um, increased um, severity of storms, and then a subset of, of islands in both the Pacific and, and in the Indian Ocean are, are so low-lying that they are, uh, they are now confronting the specter of loss of ter habitable territory. And so these are really pretty um, stark and significant impacts that they're contemplating. And while some may be shared with other, say, coastal communities in uh, the global north, their ability to remain resilient in the face of them is, is compromised for, for, for several reasons, but oftentimes because of um, the sort of uh, differences in development and uh, capacity in terms of financial resources. Pacific Island countries have um, vanishingly low uh, carbon footprints, and, uh, and yet they're contemplating uh, having to leave their histories and cultures and the, the lands in which they've lived. There are some discussions about creating refugee statuses tied to the climate crisis, and some countries are debating labor agreements with island nations as a response to climate change. But that doesn't seem fair. It seems like we're just accepting that some countries will have to be happy with whatever they're given. These kinds of arrangements aren't widely available because if you are not the right age, the right level of skill, the, if you don't have this, the language necessary, you're not able to make those moves. Um, or even just the resources to, to buy a plane ticket and to move yourself, much less your family. Uh, so we find that it, it does disproportionately impact um, women and um, the elderly if, uh, and, and younger um, uh, people if they are unable to access, say, labor agreements. But they, again, zooming out in the way that you have, is, is you're, you're, you're suggesting is true. There is not a reparative element to it. It's, um, it may be a, a gesture of, of charity, but it's not one of repair. We've seen people from the Middle East, from Saharan Africa, and from Central America who were forced to move in part because of droughts caused by climate change. And they're being turned away at borders, or being allowed to die, or in the worst cases, being killed. 
What do you think about how the global north has responded to these people trying to escape the effects of climate change? What we see right now is um, the sort of um, increase in xenophobia, the hardening of, of borders, at least um, increasing platforms within within countries to uh, you know, political platforms for uh, hardening borders. And uh, and that sense of exclusion is increasing. And that, again, is happening uh, in isolation of a conversation around what are the triggers? Why is this happening? What is the what what are the shifts that are being experienced by those who are um, otherwise trying to um, for the most part, stay in, in their countries and, and, and thrive in their countries, but are, are finding it so difficult that they're willing to take such a risky move. So um, the response is, is disconcerting, and we can imagine that it will only worsen as the pressures increase um, within countries for individuals, families, communities to cross border into another country. It is important to say, though, of course, we see and hear a lot about movement from the global south to the global north and all of the knock-on effects of that from, you know, the individual experience of the migrant to the changing political um, environment as a result of it. But most of that movement is from the global south, is within the global south, so from countries that are neighbors to one another. And so the pressures and the stresses are actually happening in countries, again, that are, um, are equally sensitive, if not more so, than the places where they're coming from. So that's also an important consideration as we think about how to assist countries um, globally and and, and uh, managing uh, the flow of, of migration, but also ensuring human rights in the, in the context of those migration flows. There was this one quote in your paper, humanity is one expression of nature defending itself. Could you explain what that means? One of the ways in which we have compartmentalized the environment if it, it is, is thinking about um, ourselves as separate and apart from that. And so one of the refrains, for example, during the, um, the civic en engagement and the civil society engagement around the Paris Agreement was that, you know, essentially that we're not defending nature, we're nature defending itself, right? That we are very much a part of the climate. The climate is not an issue, it's the context in, within which our lives um, will um, develop and that we are not separate or apart from um, our public health, our well-being is not separate and apart from the health and well-being of the planet um, uh, writ large. And so understanding ourselves as being integrated into that rather than apart from that is a different orientation. It's a, a different worldview and would be a departure from the predominant system um, of thinking uh, to date, but is certainly an, a core element of, it's, uh, again, broadly speaking, indigenous approaches, um, approaches that of environmental and climate justice, which understands the environment is where you live, work, and play, so it's very intimately connected in your day-to-day -day, um, and your expression of, of your self and your ability to thrive. Um, so it's really sort of emphasizing the notion that there's a false dichotomy between nature and society or nature and the individual when, in fact, they're intimately related. Uh, and, you know, there are philosophical um, uh, foundations for that that approach, that way of thinking that we are separate and apart. But I think as we see how, um, how vulnerable we are to the impacts of a changing climate, it, it really does question whether or not that was a uh, sound dichotomy. So this new theory of justice would need to avoid the same mistakes of the current legal system. 
it would need to make amends with the victims of the current system. And it would need to understand the world in a way the current system has tried to destroy. There was this section of the paper that asks whether even questioning the status quo is heresy or revolutionary talk. Yeah, I mean, I, I bring that up just because, um, you know, it's um, as uh, a, a you know, trained lawyer and law professor, I obviously have a deep respect for the law um, and what it means for society and how it is a reflection of our values and how we want our values to walk and talk in the world. And that's really significant. I also believe that there are some elements of our legal system that have locked in these differences in power and, um, and, and resource access and wealth that um, require a, a sort of a, 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 a rejiggering, a, re- a shifting, and um, um, a rethinking. And that can be seen as quite uh, outside of the box. I recognize the value, for example, of of law being something that is predictable and static over time for the purposes of stability in in society. I also think that we are um, sort of at the final act of um, a a set of laws that were supported by a political economy that was preferencing, um, say, the corporate body over the human body, Um, the bodies of women and young children and people of color and those in the global south. And that that needs to be rethought rethought and and changed, and I think that will be to the benefit of everyone, and certainly the most vulnerable as we see the changes um, to the climate impacting them the most. What do you think is the alternative if we don't do whatever it takes to build a system that's more just? I mean, the alternative is, I think, significantly worse. Um, We have uh, what, you know, one could consider the sort of last act of the colonial tragedy if we aren't able to um, to address these issues because, again, right now people, many um, millions of people are suffering as a result of, um, of the impacts of climate change. We're seeing devastation. Um, Hurricane Dorian was a, a perfect example, again, of how uh, a, a single storm can cripple an entire country. Um, we saw the same in Typhoon Haiyan. We see droughts and displacements of indigenous peoples. We see the, the trauma that young people are suffering as a result of these events, um, that's the alternative. We also see the early examples of the political fallout of these things. So if we're seeing droughts in the Northern Triangle inducing um, cross-border migration through Mexico into the United States, if we take that variable out um, of the equation, if we don't consider it, if we don't um, incorporate it into our our thinking about the appropriate responses, we'll continue to see the emergence of demagogues, we'll continue to see race baiting and, and xenophobia. And we'll also see what many um, who may not be the most, you know, sort of, um, may not be the champions of, of climate action, we'll see more government. We'll see uh, uh, shrinking resources. We'll see the need to um, in, insert um, uh, maybe more restrictive policies um, because of the, uh, the, the damage that will, will happen to infrastructure. Um, to, um, to, to resources, the dwindling resources as well. So there are a number of dystopian elements that we can imagine here. There have been many sort of fictional representations of them on the big screen. There are a number of uh, news reports that are showing snapshots of that happening right now in different parts of our world. And the question is that, um, you know, what are we willing to, to tolerate? 
is this cost of thinking through a different way of, of doing business, is that greater than what we're um, setting ourselves up for? I don't think so. Um, so I prefer to think about what we might build um, and recognizing it as a, as a process that has very little time, but still a process that is um, plausible and necessary. Even if we work to build this better world, will we get there in time? So this is a tough one, right? Because I do, I think, um, as I've described before, I think we sort of are racing towards the shore. The wave is cresting, crested, um, and we're racing towards the shore. And there's some things that we, um, we're definitely um, behind, right? And we needed to act much earlier in order to avert um, significant impact. Um, Every action, though, will make it, every positive action will make the impact of climate change less severe. Um, I, I don't want to be, um, I want to be clear-eyed about this, right, which is to say that there are surprises, there are abrupt changes that we may not be able to anticipate, but every bit that we do to let up off the gas, quite literally, will put us in better position. And one of the things that, um, when you look back on past movements, is that um, whether it's the abolition movement, our civil rights, um, the people that were looking to change the status quo were were ridiculed as radicals, uh, were seen as um, uh, um, literally, you know, sort of um, enemies of the state in some respects, um, on, uh, at best idealistic, um, were going to undermine the either economic or social order of the day. And this went on in, in both instances, depending on where you see, say, you know, sort of identify as the starting point of those movements. This went on for decades in some cases and centuries for some others. Um, and so it's, it is, you know, it is typical for us to see that these movements like the youth climate strikes have come out of a period of, you know, people being called radical and unrealistic and trying to destroy economies, et cetera, et cetera. We are now seeing the point where um, the, the, the youth voice is undeniable and in past actions that has, has been a tipping point uh, for change. And so I'm hopeful about it. I, I think the question of whether it's fast enough is, is, is a tough one because we're, we are behind, but the, things happen in, in um, social movements in an instant. Uh, one small shock can tip us into a whole new world and, and one that's quite hopeful. So I find this all quite hopeful. Um, one question is, you know, there are differences in tactics. Some are striking, some think striking or rather, you know, these formal demonstrations or protests are too polite. Um, we'll see how that plays out. I think all sorts of um, actions, both legal, extra-legal, have been key parts of shifts in our, um, in our society. I want to thank Professor Burkett for speaking with me and explaining the ideas her paper explores. This was a shorter edited version of a longer interview. The full conversation will be posted as a separate episode where you can hear about regime shift, how colonialism and imperialism shaped our current response to climate change, and what actions are appropriate to create space for climate justice. Thanks for listening.